One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Zaina Hashem Beck, author of the poetry collection, O. The collection is called O for many reasons, but one of the reasons is that it is the vowel or a vowel in some of the key themes like God, home, joy, loss, mother, ode, memory, body. We'll be back with Zaina Hashem Beck after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews, hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash first draft writers. 
This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters. Consider it a subscription service. It is. It's like a newspaper or any hard good you get delivered to your house on a monthly basis. I have been putting my heart and soul, sweat and tears, yes, sometimes there's tears, into the podcast for nine solid years, delivering nearly 50 episodes a year of what I believe, and I hope you do too, is quality content you can't find anywhere else. There are nearly 400 authors in the archive, which is always growing. It represents at least 10 times that number in hours spent reading, researching, interviewing, editing, and producing this show, and it is all me. There is no staff behind the scenes scheduling my guests, reading the books, or helping me research and do the hours of work necessary to get this show into the world where you can download it and enjoy it for free. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is Lebanese poet Zaina Hashembek. Her poetry collections include Louder Than Hearts, which won the 2016 May Sarton New Hampshire Poetry Prize, and the newly released O. Her chapbooks include Three Araby Song, which won the 2016 Rattle Chapbook Prize, and There Was and How Much There Was. Her first book, To Live in Autumn, centered on Beirut, and won the 2013 Backwaters Prize and was a runner-up for the 2014 Julie Souk Award. Zaina Hashembeck's writing covers a variety of topics, including home, estrangement, language, the body, love, motherhood, and faith. Her poetry often exists at the intersection of the personal and the political, the divine and the profane. The poems in O focus on longing, motherhood, womanhood, prayer, and what it means to leave one's homeland, among other topics. They are written as sonnets, free verse, and odes, among other forms. Many appear in both Arabic and English. We began the discussion with Zaina Hashembek sharing her thoughts on the relationship between speaking three languages, English, Arabic, and French, and poetry. I think poetry has its own language that is kind of beyond all languages in some sense, because poetry, in, for me, in some sense, is a way of seeing and a way of being. And so in that sense, it's, it has its own language. No matter what language you're, you're writing in, it's also the language of poetry. So I went to a French school first. I learned simultaneously Arabic and French. And then 
around the sixth grade, around the age of 12, we, we began learning English. I always loved languages, to be honest. I was always interested in what words mean and how you can put this word in a sentence and it would mean this, and you could put it in another sentence and it would mean that. And so I love that. I love that when you, and when you have more languages, you have more room to play. So, yeah, I think what drew me to poetry is the language of poetry. First, I encountered it in Arabic and French, and then I encountered it in English. But no matter what language I encountered poetry in, I just loved it. I love that a poem could be so transcendent. It could take you on a journey in the span of like half a page. I love how the language is condensed. I love the wild imagery. Uh, I love the sound of it, the music of it. I like reading it out loud. I like performing it. I like reading it to myself. Uh, and I remember very vividly that even as a, like as a school student, one of my favorite like types of homework was when we memorized poems and had to recite them. So I really just loved reciting poetry in any language. Back then it was French and, and Arabic. Yeah, I do think that it does give you kind of a more... I don't know, maybe a more well-rounded perspective, maybe a more diverse perspective, because you can tap into different worlds and worldviews, and that even though I write in English, I don't feel that my poetry is American-centric, do you know? So it is the same language, technically, that I'm using, but I, I'm coming at it from like a a different place because literally I come from a different place. Well, I thought it might be nice to start with, with reading one. And if you don't mind, um, yeah. I picked one out, but if you don't want to read that one, we can pick something else. But I, I really uh, loved in the beginning, the poem daily. And this one is in English and Arabic. Yes. It's a duet. The idea behind the duets is that if you only read English, You've got, you've got a poem in English on the page. And if you only read Arabic, you have a poem in Arabic on the page. And if you can toggle between both, then you kind of go like zigzagging across the page. And hopefully a third poem opens up in that conversation between the two, two languages. Daily Kulayam. My little country is not enough. Watani sagiru layakfini. Here, the rain is the peasant's god and the driver's curse. No remedy but antidepressants and prayer. Here, even the atheist prays, for prayer is a sport like smoking in the morning. And prayer is an art like singing in mourning. And language without God lacks longing. And everyone knows the only answer to all difficult questions is to give thanks. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. My little country is not enough. I abandon it every day and I return, then abandon it again, carrying always bags of pine nuts. 
أمر برائحة طلاء الأظافر في الصالونات أمر برائحة الغبار في الدكان قرب البيت أحمل حقيبة اليد السوداء and a tin of olive oil in its wooden coffin so the airport security would let me through. Put anything in a coffin and they'll let you through. القمامة على الأرصفة والصنوبر في الأكياس وكل لقاء بداية لرحيل. My little country is not enough. وطني الصغير لا يكفيني. I lose it every day on purpose and weep. I whisper, come back, follow the bread scent, follow the lemon and minefields, follow the wailing of the ambulance, follow the songs of the dead and the living. I lose it every century, every hour, and it returns every exile saying, Remember, هذا المشفى حيث ولدت ما زال يحرس بكاء الأمهات والأطفال. These vagabond days are old, are new, like the poet's love for balconies. هذه الأيام قديمة جديدة كحب الشاعر للشرفات. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about writing this and the Arabic lines. I'm assuming they're not translated. They're their own lines. Yeah, this is actually, it's interesting that you chose this. This is the first duet I've written. So there are several in the collection. I don't remember how many, but they're kind of sprinkled around. And this is the very first one. And it began in English. And I just felt as if this is this is not enough. It's something else is happening. And at that point, I was returning to Arabic poetry because I was starting to work on the podcast that I co-host called Maksuda, which is a podcast in Arabic about Arabic poetry. So I was starting to work on that and, and to return to live more inside Arabic poetry than I've had in, in, dec- in a decade, maybe. And so my mind was producing sentences in Arabic somehow. So the the Arabic then came and I thought, first I translated the English. And then I thought, no, 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 that's not, that's not what this poem is doing. It's, it's not a translation. And slowly it became this conversation between uh, both languages about the same place, which here is Lebanon. And what interests me is how if you shift languages, you also, even if it's ever so slightly, shift perspective. So that I found out slowly that my, my own look to Lebanon or to my little country that I refer to here is not the same in English and in Arabic. And that's where, like, the curiosity about, oh, what can these conversations do? What can these duets do? Is there anything that you would want non-Arabic speakers to know about the Arabic lines? That they sometimes contradict the English lines. Sometimes, not all the time. So, for example, in this particular poem, there's no blatant contradiction. They're more in sync, the Arabic and the English, I would say. 
But in another poem, in another duet, the English says, and I have not stopped looking for you. And the Arabic says, The Arabic has stopped looking for the place or the lover or the friend. So that, that, that's just one small example about how it can, can be reversed. But it's not always reversed. So in, in that particular one, there's no direct contradiction, just maybe harsher details in Arabic. One of the things I noticed as through lines through all of your poems, and we can talk about some of the themes, there was so much about prayer, motherhood, matriarchal lines, it's it's a love letter to Beirut and your origins. It's about being in exile and what returning can do. There's also a lot about your body and what you carry, and and basically um, this sort of longing. Like one of my favorite lines in the whole collection says, "I eat when I thirst," and I love that line yeah. because it's like this approximation it's like so much longing but you're not fulfilling the longing with the right means yeah yeah thank you thank you for for that description first of all because i feel like that's a very um like on point description about what i was trying to do in the book you you technically mentioned all the themes that that govern this collection and the collection is called O for many reasons but one of the reasons is that it is the vowel or a vowel in some of the key themes like god home joy loss mother ode memory body like you mentioned Thank you for that description. Uh, I'm moved that you've read it so closely. So, uh, and I was trying to also see how all of these intersect because it's nothing is just about one thing. No poem is just about one thing, right? So a poem could be about motherhood, as you mentioned, and matriarchal lines. But does motherhood exist outside the body, outside illness, outside heartbreak? Uh, does it exist outside of politics? Does it exist outside of uh, the physical place where you're being raised? You know, so all of these kind of, I'm interested in, in how they intersect all these themes. So I guess the first one I want to ask you about has to do with, with prayer and God and the relationship between yeah. the two. I mean, you said in, in the poem you just read that, um, at language without God lacks longing. And I noticed yeah. from the very from the very beginning this element of really strong sense of prayer and God, but also maybe a uh, a lack of interest in organized religion. I think I am a very spiritual person. I think I have faith, but I have my own definition of God which I don't know yet. Like I, if you told me now, define, I, I wouldn't know how to define God, but I feel that uh, we are God, like God lives in us. And th there's a line in the Quran that says that God is closer to you than your artery. For me, that's a metaphor. What does that mean? That means God is like right here. God is inside you, right? So yeah, faith is very 
uh, omnipresent in the collection. Prayer, I, my personal, one of my personal ways of praying is definitely poetry for me. Poetry is a kind of prayer. Love is a kind of prayer. Dancing is a kind of prayer. There's so many kinds of prayer that we do every single day, and they're beautiful. And I also want to point out that the reference that faith in the book kind of crosses many different religions, right? So there's uh, there's a hint of Sufism here, there's Islam there, there's Christianity here, mainly Islam and Christianity, I would say, because I grew up with, with both of these in, in, in Lebanon. Um, and I, again, I'm interested in intersections. Again, I'm interested in how they intersect, as opposed to, oh, we are different. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. I wonder what it's what it feels like for you then to write poems. Because prayer is different than just thinking. And do you feel yeah. do you feel different when you when you're writing these? Or maybe only when you write the good ones they get get published. <laughs> Well, when you first write a poem, I think there's always like this rush of, I wrote something. And then the next day or the next week or the next month, you look at it and you're like, what? I like this? Why did I like this? It's not always the case. Sometimes you still like your poems. But yeah, there's always this rush of, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, again, I don't. I don't believe in dichotomies. And one of the dichotomies that we are used to thinking through is like mind versus body or head versus heart. And I don't buy that. I think, again, they're interrelated. So yes, I think about my poems and I also feel my poems. And I mean, if you really look at the, I mean, if you really want to look at why we pray, even if, you know, we're talking about traditional prayer in like the Islamic or, or Christian sense of the word, right? Why do we pray? Why do we pray every Sunday or five times a day or wh whenever you, you happen to pray? We pray to connect with something beyond us, right? 
to understand something beyond this physical world. And poetry, to a certain extent, also does that. It's an attempt to understand why are we here? Why do we die? <laughs> right? Uh, how do we grieve? Uh, how do we relate to one another? And how there's something beyond just our day-to-day life. So poetry, yes, is in the daily, but it's it's looking at the daily from a certain angle and attempting to also transcend it. So, you know, it, it's it's the same reason. I think the re- the same probably there are similar reasons to why people pray and why I write poetry is what I'm trying to say. I'm wondering about how that longing fits in. Um, you know, I mentioned this as a, as a, as a love letter to Beirut, you are in exile from your country, um, from where I think your parents were both born there. You, for instance, have a poem called what the returning do. And in there you have a line that says, sometimes you wonder how two loves so conflicting persist. And throughout these, a lot of these poems that have to do with Beirut, it's like, it's like a a visceral feeling of desire for this country that you can't inhabit anymore. I just wanted to ask you about writing about that. And then you were, you were saying earlier that that you don't believe in dichotomies and it's, you know, sometimes you wonder how two loves so conflicting persist is kind of, I think some people might think of that as a dichotomy, but you know, how we, how we live with, with that kind of inner turmoil. Yeah. It's funny because when I was writing, um, oh, as it started to feel like a collection to me, I was so adamant within myself that this book is not going to have Beirut in it. It's, it's funny because that's the first thing people know. <laughs> I, wanted, I didn't want Beirut to be so omnipresent, but that's an impossibility because I think, and Tripoli as well, because Tripoli is where I, I grew up uh, and went to school. Beirut is a, where, I, where I went to college. So our cities live inside us. We carry them wherever we go. And so necessarily when I decided that, oh, it was going to be a collection about the body. Yes, it is a collection about the body, but the cities are still in the body, you know? And I think I failed and succeeded to a certain extent. So I failed to kind of like kick Beirut out of this collection because it's obviously very much there. But I perhaps succeeded in shifting a little bit my perspective and turning more inward. So that if you look at my first book, my first look is like an overt love letter to Beirut. Like it's in every, it's, it's the reason why this collection exists. The second book also kind of focuses very much on place and how we inhabit places. O is quieter. It turns more inward. It wants to focus on the body. And so maybe, maybe in previous books, it was the body or the self existing in these cities. Whereas in this book, it's the cities happening to exist in the body 
along with other things like, you know, motherhood, love, uh, illness, mental illness, faith, all of this. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense. So it's kind of, a, it was more of an inward uh, turn, turn for me so that when Beirut pops up, it pops up because it's in, it's in my body, not, and it's not, it's almost not intentional. I wonder if what the body, the relationship of the body is in the Arabic language, because in America, we say we have a body. We never say that we are a body. And that's sort of a whole disembodied concept of who we are Mm -hmm. as physical, Mm -hmm. sentient beings. We tend to really separate our head from everything else. Is it the same in Arabic? I think so. I think you say... Uh, which means I have a body so it is similar I mean I'm not a linguist maybe if I think about it more I'll come up with something smarter to say but um, I think it's kind of the same and I think we go back again to uh, pushing against dichotomies so you're saying we're saying we have a body whereas our head I'm saying it's all one and the same they they are constantly in conversation with each other the profane and the divine uh, the political and the personal the here and the there this world and some kind of world beyond this world the self and the other right it's they're constantly in conversation with one another and that's probably why you couldn't avoid this love letter to Beirut, because even if you're fo- focusing on the body, that's where your body was born. That's that's like an intricate yeah. part of your story. You talk about your mother, your grandmother. You have a, a poem in there where you're talking about basically like your birth. It's a fairly long poem. And it, it's a, cra- called, a crown of sonnets. Yeah. Yeah. It's called Poem Beginning and Ending with My Birth. And you're talking about mm. your mother. And there's a line in there about heaven opening its gate at birth. And at the end, mothers birthing sinners and prophets. So I just mm. wanted to ask you a little more about thinking of yourself as being born and how maybe motherhood other people's motherhood, your motherhood, influenced this poem? The story of when I was born is a story that my mom repeatedly told me throughout my childhood. So it's it's literally like a real thing. And I kind of always knew this is somehow going to, it's going to make its way into a poem, but I don't know how. So she just says that on the day you were born, I saw everything before it happened. So she's like, I woke up and I saw that I was going to have contractions and I had contractions. And then I saw that your brother was going to come in and and ask me to tie his shoelaces. And your brother walked in and asked me to tie his shoe. And the day went on and on like that. So for her, that's something where she was constantly seeing things before they happen. And that's such a fascinating story, right? Like, what? Um, So I carried it with me all those years. And I think... Finally, you know, I in this poem, and this is why I chose for this poem to be a crown of sonnets. You know, it's a series of 15 sonnets. It's, like you said, a very long poem. It's because 
A, I needed the length, and B, I needed to somehow contain it within a form because it's such a vast subject motherhood and how I was born and my mother and her mother and my daughters and and the patriarchy and being in Lebanon and the war and languages and, and childhood and lo- first loves and first kisses all of this how do I contain it in one in one poem and so that form the crown of sonnets really helped out and it just kind of flew you know I wrote it over the span of of, of many many weeks and um, I guess this poem, like you said, examines generations of mothers. It examines what we inherit from our mothers, what we maybe fight against, what is expected of mothers versus what motherhood actually feels like, how to resist the the, the mother myth as in putting a mother on a pedestal and expecting her, you know, to be perfect. How do mothers take care of children during war? Uh, I never did that, but my mother certainly did. What joys and traumas are perpetuated from generation to generation? I mean, I'm sure you have it in your family too. If, If you think of how different you are from what your grandmother were, was. It's really, I feel like it's such a vast difference, that world and then our electronic, social media, open, connected world versus their world, which was really a much, a much different thing. Uh, so I was thinking about all of this. And I think for the longest time, I avoided centering motherhood in my poetry because I was scared. I was scared that it was because it was such a difficult topic, but I was also scared that I would be labeled, oh yeah, she talks about, like she writes about mothers, you know, she woman stuff, women stuff. And that's just something that we have to undo. Uh, that that assumption that if a, if a woman writer is writing about being a mom, then it's not that serious, you know. Uh, I think it was it was there somehow this this fear of not being taken seriously, and I kind of said, I don't know if we can swear on this podcast, but fuck it, <laughs> I'm just going to write about motherhood, you know. Is that society telling you that motherhood isn't like important enough or intellectual enough? No, I think it's the publishing industry. It's more the publishing industry than society, really. It's, uh, I think, if anything, the society I grew up in really valued motherhood. Uh, but it's a double, it's a double-edged sword in the sense that what I said is is don't. And I think, I think. The, the crown of sonnet has a line when I say, don't you God us or something like that. Like don't make us gods because when the image of the mother is made into this like holy thing, then you can't make any mistakes. And that's a, such a big burden because you want to mess up and you will mess up and you're only human. So what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that the cloak of 
oh, mothers are great, can have some misogyny in it, can have some like, yeah, mothers are great. And therefore, that's, that's what you should do. And you should not, you know, you should be holy and all of that. But I think what I was, what I, when I was thinking about not, not, not writing or not writing about, about motherhood, I was thinking more of the publishing world and the publishing industry, I think. That's a hard thing to come into your art because poetry, I mean, look, it's a lot of hard work, but it's also inspiration and you don't want your, your inspiration to be jaded in that way, but it's also maybe unrealistic to think if you want your poems to get out in the world, that it is pure inspiration untethered. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think to a certain extent, like I was probably not yet ready to dive into that subject like motherhood and 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 write about it and I think poems come when you're ready to be honest well one of the things you know that idea of this vulnerability is you know you you are sort of marking the things that are very profound but not maybe when they come out they're so innocent of what your the next generation says you have a poem called things my daughter said and yes, I wonder if you could read that. Sure, yes. That was the last poem I added to O, and I wasn't sure of it. I sent it to my editor, Ali. Uh, hello, Ali. Awesome editor. Uh, kind of saying, I don't know if this is a strong poem. Like, it feels a bit, like, too whimsical, too light. But, like, take a look at it. And she was like, no, let's add it. Let's add it to the collection. Of course, it, it like it it converses very well with all the other poems. So she was the one who encouraged me to include it. It's just a comp- a compilation, literally, of things my daughters said to me over the years. So this is things my daughters said. Everybody is a woman. When I'm older, I'm gonna be older than you. Mom, 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 mom. Is moonlight scary? I want a pink bone for my birthday. When I'm a boy, I'll go into the boys' bathroom. I want to be a cloud so that I never grow old. How can I miss you a little when I love you a lot? Can you call my lost toy and ask her where she is? Tomorrow is a long time ago. When I'm a woman, Will my grandmothers recognize me? Why is the moon following us? I'm the king of all and of this family too. Do you love me a hundred million? They're called potato edges, not wedges. Just look at them. You and dad are not married. I miss seeing cows on the road. Terrifying is not a nice word. Is God the boss, mom? I was alive once. It was far away and long ago. I don't think we really have angels on our shoulders. It's so beautiful. I mean, it's so innocent and profound at the same time. Yeah, that's that's how children are sometimes, right? They're the original poets as well uh it's a poem that makes me smile and I like that 
Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm good. So one of the things that I was really curious about in here, that's maybe more just like, um, a really interesting detail about your life was in one of the poems you wrote that half our hometowns thought our marriage was a sin. So it sounded like you (laughs) met your husband when you were young, maybe high school aged, and that um, there was like some, some to do about you getting married. (laughs) Middle school age, actually. Uh, We've been together since we were 12 and a half or 13, something like that. Uh, yeah, uh, my husband, so we went to the same French school. It's, uh, yeah, this is also something that makes me smile. So my, uh, my husband, Marwan used to live in Saudi Arabia with his dad. So they're Lebanese, but his dad used to work in Saudi Arabia. My parents never left Lebanon. So I was in, in at the school in Tripoli at the Lycée in Tripoli all my life. And when we were about eight or nine, the Gulf, um, the Gulf War happened and that was in the nineties, the first one. And so they ran away. Uh, they, they ran away from Riyadh in Saudi Arabia because apparently uh, it like, it was somehow like some rockets fell there. So he remembers dry, his dad driving for hours and hours and hours from Saudi Arabia to Lebanon with the entire family in one car. And he joined our school in the middle of the school year. I do not remember this, but he remembers that I was the first person he met, that the teacher asked me and another student to to tell him like what he's got, what books he has to, what books he has to buy, what kind of stationery, you know, kind of introduce him to the school and how things go. And he remembers my face very, very well as the first uh, friendly face he saw at that school. And then years later, when we were, I think, yeah, 13, we started going out together, not knowing, not realizing that we were of different religions. Um, I think we didn't realize it until two years into our going out, two years into our going out together. Like, that's how much of an on-issue it was. Um, uh, so basically I'm, you know, I'm Muslim, he's Christian. And we realized it like about a year and a half or two later when one of my friends told me, Oh, you know, Marwan, I think he's Christian, <laughs> you know, cause our, our school was very, uh, secular. So we didn't really speak of, of religion much. And this is when it started like, Oh my God, what do we do? You know, we're of different religions. How, how are we, do we stay together? Do we not stay together? Of course we were children at the time, you know, 15 years old and somehow against everyone. Like I remember even some of the teachers, not all of the teachers, but some of the teachers tried to like separate us and not make us sit next to each other at school because, you know, they're still together. <laughs> years down the line they're still together they're gonna have issues they're of different religions right what what are they gonna do yeah we just we just stuck it out and we both wanted a civil marriage we did not want a religious marriage and that does not exist in lebanon so we flew to cyprus which is like a 15 minute flight and got married there and came out came back so there was some resistance, I'm guessing from the general, it's, it's not something straightforward. It's just something that you sense from the general society, like even your friends 
would tell you things. And of course, we were children. So of course, my friend told me these things. You know, like, how are you going to raise your kids? Your kids are going to be so lost. I remember my mom very clearly telling me, if you love him, then you love him. Who cares? So, yeah. Well, having an experience like that so young, I would think it would influence your poetry, you know, when you're thinking to have had that experience of like not knowing and then knowing and then really understanding mm-hmm. what society says about that. Mm-hmm. Ha- has it influenced, you know, how you look at the world since then? Absolutely. It has because I no longer just look at the world from the perspective of uh, one religion. Uh, not that I ever have, mind you. I think I've always, in, in our household, it's always been like Christianity and Islam anyways. Uh, like I said, it has made my definition of faith vaster. And so we go back to the initial question that you asked me about prayer and what prayer is and why we pray and how we pray so that, that I arrived to a much vaster definition of faith and prayer then what I, I mean, I might have arrived at it anyways, but I think it does help when at such a young age, you love someone and they're from a different religion and some people are telling you, oh, what are you going to do? You know, this isn't right. And you're thinking very early on, why isn't this right? Doesn't make sense. Of course it's right. Why, why wouldn't it be right? Right? So, uh, so of course it has, I would say. It's, it's influenced my entire world worldview. But I also want to add, um, I also want to add that there is something to be said about the fact that we did not realize we were from two different religions until like a year and a half or two down the line. And I think that's a very positive thing. I think it speaks to what kind of society uh, we were brought up in. So yes, this is the society that when things got serious was saying, oh, what are they going to do? But it's also the society where Christians and Muslims, despite the fact that, yes, there is sectarianism in Lebanon, right? Uh, we, 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 you know, despite what the media likes to portray, uh, the, the, the quote-unquote the Middle East, uh, we kind of lived along one another not even asking what religion you are. Do you know? Um, I don't know if I'm making any sense here. So in in some sense, I'm born a Muslim, but I'm also culturally a Christian. And my husband is born a Christian, but he's also culturally a Muslim, right? So that it didn't, we didn't even notice the difference of religion. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I mentioned 
earlier this concept of maybe not quite being satiated and this sense of longing. And I mentioned that line that I really loved called, I eat when I thirst. And I don't know if you wanted to say anything Mm -hmm. more about that, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to do that if you wanted to. I think a lot of our existence and also of poetry is about desire and, and longing. What are we without longing, really? I mean, I wonder, or without our desires. Uh, I eat when I, th- when I thirst is, again, another line that is both, both literal and metaphorical. The fact that I struggled for a long time with like my body image and with gaining weight and kind of oscillating between gaining and losing weight. So I eat when I thirst is literally when people tell you, but sometimes you're thirsty, uh, drink water, you might be thirsty as opposed to like, you, you might not be hungry, you might just be thirsty, right? And this is me saying, well, I eat when I thirst. Um, literally, that, that kind of dynamic with eating and with, with my body and with gaining weight. But also metaphorically, as you point out, to... Um, longing longing in its longing and desire in its really vastest sense uh, longing for connection be it uh, to connect with yourself or to connect with a lover or to connect with your homeland or to connect with your friends or with your language or with your uh, mother or with your daughters what are we without that what are we without that connection. I want to celebrate that. In some sense, it's a mistaken thing to eat when you thirst, as if something is always missing, right? But it's also, I want to celebrate that, that at least I'm trying to get at something, reach that connection, even though I keep missing it. Can you read something by an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Sure, yes. So this question had me really thinking. I was I first thought of um Miroslav Holub's The Door. It's a gorgeous poem. I really love it. And then I thought of Lucille Clifton's Homage to My Hips or Why Some People Bummed at Me Sometimes. I think that's what it's called. But then I decided to read an excerpt of um Murid, uh, Murid Berghouti's poem, it's a long poem called A Small Eternity. And uh, I read it in Arabic, and this is my translation. Uh, people can find the, the entire poem online on The Baffler. I love what he's saying here about mortality and how we carry our, our dead within us. So this is one stanza. Can I change death's mind and convince it of its failure? Can death believe I'm walking with my departed's feet? Because my steps are their steps, and my eyes are their eyes, and this poem is their listening. Do I convince death that they're happening to me now, like salvation or an embrace? They're happening to me now so that together we may bear the burden of this unbearable beauty. 
a small eternity surprises us in this instant indeed. So we return to longing, right? We return to longing. And what's really interesting in our convo here is that uh, further down in this poem, Murid writes, here I am banishing longing from my language, which is something I don't think I've managed to do yet. But he's, he's banishing longing from his language because he is the other. He is the departed as well. Would you want to banish longing from your language? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. And I don't think he does either. I think he, it's a contradiction and, and like he knows it. I think he wants to banish longing in the sense of me breaking the dichotomy that I was talking about. In that sense, you know, dichotomies of, of, of self and other is for me, if that makes any sense. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This isn't something that kind of changed a lot from the first draft as much as it was like difficult to write. So this is an excerpt of another duet uh, called Ode to Leaving Ghurba. Kathibatun ana taksiruni nihayatu wa tahjuruni al-amakinu Remember when we read Houseman and Asayab on your balcony? What was that poem? وَمَا زِلْتُ أَكْرَهُ أَوْرَاكِيَ الثَّقِيلَةَ الْمُمْتَلِئَةَ وَمَا زِلْتُ لَا أَتُوبُ عَنِ الْقَهْوَةِ وَالْخَرِيفِ You made tea, and I hate tea, but that night I liked the idea of it. لَطَالَمَا كَانَتْ أَرْصِفَةُ بَيْرُوتَ مُمْتَلِئَةً بِالْهَارِبِينَ مِنَ الْمَوْتِ وَالْوَاقَعَ So, you're in Amsterdam now? Did you buy weed? We should try lighting up Mulukhiyye next time you are here. There are so many ways to pretend to recover a city. I wish we were still in the same time zone. I think you're probably asleep now, so I gotta, and I gotta start walking to my gate. You should see the birds here. Not many of them, but feels like many. One day, I will open my door and walk over, and the distance between continents won't be tiring or long. Do you want to share why you chose that? Yes. Um, this is a duet, one of the most difficult of them to write. Um, it was just difficult for me to, to uh, make the Arabic and English flow in and out of each other. And also like the English takes place. So it began as uh, a poem, a poem from text messages. And it was only in English. But again, I thought, what the snow? Like this is, this is about a conversation between two friends that were in Beirut, should also be in Arabic. And then the English became this present thing where they're talking right now from across different continents. Whereas the Arabic is them there in Beirut in the past. So that the Arabic exists in a different time, really. And it was just a bit difficult to juggle both of these. Where do you write? 
mostly at my desk in my bedroom with the door closed. Um, but really anywhere, because sometimes just poems come anywhere. But yeah, that's my preference is definitely all revisions come at the desk. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I either open the door and take a walk or I dance alone or, and this is my favorite, I go out and dance with friends to Arabic music. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? It depends. Uh, When I was living in Dubai for a few years, the person I showed my first drafts to was a friend of mine and an Irish poet called Frank Dolligan. We live in different time zones now. Uh, I also show my work to my friends who aren't poets. And uh, that's important for me. It's important that someone who isn't a poet also reads the poem and, and connects with it. How have you dealt with rejection? By realizing that editors are human beings with different tastes. And by realizing that sometimes I send out poems too early when they're not ready. And by also realizing that sometimes I send out poems that are ready, but they're just not for this particular editor. And so I just keep returning to the writing and to the poems. And what is your favorite word? Oh my God, that's a question that kills me. Um, The I don't know if it's my favorite word, but it's the first word that came to my mind when I read this question, and it's the word nuance. And I honestly don't know if I like or dislike the way it sounds, nuance, but I do like its meaning. Thank you so much for your time in this conversation. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you for, for your thoughtful questions and thoughtful reading. Appreciate it. If you liked today's show with Zaina Hashem Beck, author of the poetry collection O, oh, check out my interview with Sue Monk Kidd, author of the novel The Book of Longings. We talked about faith, listening to your authentic voice in writing, and using your imagination to learn more about your past and present. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Charles Baxter, Elizabeth Strout, Carlos Allende, and Lydia Yuknovich. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft, a dialogue on writing, a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.